Father, I want to name your sovereign authority over this auditorium today. Not sure when, when and where what was used for last time, but Lord, we declare that this is a holy place. Come in and take your presence with us. Touch the lips of your servant. And Lord, the hearts and the understanding of your people. May we grow from this to see how your word, how true your word is for the day in which we live. Father, bless us with your presence. Because we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. We might be listening for a little something like that when the last trumpet blows one of these days. I have a, um, some different insights from, uh, from what I've been teaching about the end of days, and I say that anything that is, any theories that we have been given that are older than 15 or 20 years need a bit upgrading on the basis of what has been happening in our world in this last decade or so, according to the scriptures. And uh, therefore, uh, in my, that second book, uh, I reckon that uh, almost all the, I reckon that all the trumpets have been blown. Not that it's all over with. The seven trumpets in the book of Revelation, but we will get into that today. That they've been blown, not that it's all over with, but the cumulative effect is adding. Actually, if you examine the trumpets, it is by man-made disasters and not God-made disasters. It's what we have done as a human race to ourselves. Anyway, enough of that. We're going into the lesson today. I'm going to have, I hope you got a pen and paper for just a few notes anyway on, on a few scriptures that you can look up. I always say don't just take what I say for it if, unless I can find several verses to uh, back up what I say. Um, don't believe me. We have three texts that I want to braid together that uh, will make a, a very interesting study for this afternoon. And the first one, which I can pre preach many messages or seminars or lectures out of these days, the call of Abram, I like to call him Avram, which is the Hebrew pronunciation. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord had said to Avram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. 
Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Those verses have never been taken out of our Bibles, no matter what some theologians say today. Again, I repeat, I believe our background uh, is not used to taking verses out of the Bible. However, in some of these things, we have not had as a church a theology about the last days, at least not in detail. And much of the stuff that many of uh, our people of the last uh, 30, 40 years have been believing and been teaching have come from other sources. I like to go back to the Bible. I jest and I say that I got my advanced degrees in the same university that Moses did. How many of you know that Moses went to MIT? The Midian Institute of Theology. And he was studied and he studied with the learned Egyptians and he was wise in all the ways and the teaching of the Egyptians. And the Almighty says, come on Moses, I want you to bring you over here to the backside of the desert and I'll teach you a few things. And it was a tremendous blessing to stand back from my culture. Look at where I came from as far as a Western culture. And learn from a Stone Age culture. I'll touch on this this afternoon. And see what the Scriptures really said about certain things. Anyway, so much for that. This verse says, Abraham, build me a family. It's going to be the family of redemption. And through that family, I am going to redeem the whole world. All the way down to the orphanage in Brazil and, and to, to Paraguay and to Papua New Guinea and even to Harris, Harrisonburg. Uh, a family that uh, will be blessed through what you do, Abraham. Anyway, I want to, before we leave this text and go to the second one, I want to touch especially on the first verse. Abraham or Abram, Avram, leave your country. And I'm sure that we all know what it, what it was called, but what it was, was and still is the demonic capital of the world. It was then and it is now. Abraham's father, tradition has it that his father was a dealer in carving and molding idols. And I shouldn't say young Abraham because he is already fairly old when he made this experience. But Abraham probably was an assistant in his father's business of preparing idols for those in the area of the Euphrates, the Tigris, Babylon, the demonic capital of the world. And God says, Abraham, come out of here. I'm going to show you a place where you're going to go. And he established a friendship. And one thing I like to leave with every place I talk, the bottom line for God's people today is intimacy with the Most High. Intimacy to pray without ceasing, to feel as familiar with our Father as Abraham felt, and he could talk to him. He could discuss with him. He could bargain with him. If there's ten righteous people there, Will you spare the city? You know the stories. 
to have the familiarity. And why not? In fact, we should even be closer because we are living in the Holy Spirit age. We ought to have an intimate communion with our Abba, our, our Father. Anyway, get out of this place. I'm going to show you another place. But th- that first verse has a depth of significance. Where was he coming, getting out of? Get out of here because Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Get out of here because Saddam Hussein is coming much further down the line. This is not a good place for you to be. And I'm going to send you to another place. Well, the place was called Canaan, or as in Hebrew, Canaan. And God was going to kill two birds with one stone. These people were ripe, well, almost ripe for judgment. 400 years more, when the iniquity of the Amorites are full, I'm going to have my Israelite family come and drive them out, as well as do something else. And uh, as well as establish a place for my family. Now, I want you to think about this. What was the name of the place called that God sent Abraham? Forget Canaan because we're going to get rid of that name. So what did God call it? He sure didn't call it Palestine. I hope you know, and if you don't, get one of these handouts here, the demise of distorting history, because Palestine was invented by Roman Emperor Hadrian in 132 A.D., because he destroyed Jerusalem for the second time in 62 years. Titus flattened the temple, burned the temple. Hadrian came along 62 years later. He hated the Jews. What else is new? He hated the Jews. He came and he destroyed the city and he said, no more are we going to think of this place uh, as a place of the, these wretched Jews. We're no longer are we going to call it Judea. We're going to call it Palestina which is named after Goliath and his buddies, the Philistines. Now that was no more Palestine, no more Palestina, than we are Martians. But this was Hadrian's spite idea to change the name. The Roman Empire was around for a few hundred years, and the name stuck, and today the United Nations, Europe loves it, the nations of the world love it, and people call it Palestine. I had a little bit of a, a, a confrontation, not a confrontation, a little bit of discussion. It wasn't an argument. There was nothing heated. But I was in, in um, Tonga, in Tonga. And there was a um, an, an Anglican pastor there. And I was telling him some of these things. And he said, well, Palestine's in the Bible. I said, show me where. And uh, <laughs> he went through, and he leafed, and he leafed, and he leafed. We didn't waste too much time. He finally found it in the maps. And uh, thanks to the Romans, it was in the maps. However, I should mention something that disturbs me greatly. In the New King James Bible, in the New King James Bible, in the Song of Solomon, this disturbs me terribly. The translators did put Palestine in there. They said a Palestinian girl, and that is an abomination. It's a total abomination, and uh, I don't know if they've ever corrected this or not, but 
I do believe from the publishing company that published that, there is a bit of Arab influence. And they slipped that name in. It's not in the Bible. So what did they call it? Twenty times in the book of Deuteronomy, look it up. God tells Moses, the place where the Lord your God has chosen to put his name. The place where the Lord your God has chosen to put his name. Now that's bigger than Israel. I like the name Israel, but that's bigger than Israel. And that, my brothers, sisters, and friends, is the core reason of the whole kerfuffle and the whole upheaval in the world today of who owns the ground where the Lord your God has chosen to put his name. It is not Arab oil. Well, yes, it is. But there's two reasons for everything, a good reason and the real reason. It is not global trade with the Islamic world, which affects so much of the entrepreneurs throughout the world, and particularly in Europe and the United States and Canada. It is not global trade with the Arabs. Well, yes, it is. But there's two reasons for everything, a good reason and the real reason. And the real reason is the countdown, the final challenge of who owns the temple mount where Solomon's temple once sat and the replacement built by Zerubbabel and refurbished by Herod where those temples were. And the, uh, Daniel and our Lord Jesus speaks of the abomination that causes desolation. We've got theories out there that some guy's got to rebuild this temple so that some Mr. Nasty can go in and desecrate it when, hey, I can't think of any worse abomination than a temple built to the enemy of the living God, two mosques built to the enemy of the living God, sitting on top of the ruins of the Holy of Holies. The Almighty is going to do something about that one of these days. It's not that that old building had that much significance, but it is the name of the Lord our God who arranged these things and who designed these things. This is the significance of what is going on today and the Islamic world has thrown everything they have into the battle, and particularly a propaganda battle in these days, using the BBC and the CNN and the French news agency and Reuters and every newspaper that gets their, their uh, information from the UP or the AP, the Associated Press, throwing everything into the propaganda battle that that was Arab ground. The Arabs flooded in there. The Muslims flooded in after World War I. If anybody wants to check the records of the British Foreign Office, and they'll say, straight-faced, we have been here for 5,000 years. Not realizing that Abraham is only about 4,000 years old, let's not let the facts get in the way of a good story, a good propaganda. They came in after World War II thanks to the British and maybe even the chief antagonist of the Almighty, his enemy, the adversary himself. Anyway, 
call of Abraham, Abraham, get out of here because bombs and all kinds of things are coming. In about, uh, when did they start coming? A couple of years ago. Well, they were there before that. It's been a place of evil all along. Abraham, get out of here, and I'm going to put you in a place where I have chosen to put my name. This is bigger than the Jews. Some people will say, yeah, but you know what these Jews do, and how bad they are here, and what they're doing there, and all this sort of thing. Wait a minute. If anybody doesn't like what the Jews do, they're in good company. Write this down, Ezekiel 36, 22, and the following verses. God said, it's not what you Jews, it's not because you Jews have been so good, I'm paraphrasing here, Ezekiel 36, 22, it's not because you Israelites, he says, have done so well, but because for the sake of my name, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to bring you back from the countries I have scattered you, and this is in our day, in our time, in the last decade, over a million have come back. I'm going to bring you back from the countries I have scattered you, and I am going to sprinkle clean water on you. Anybody here never needed a bit of clean water sprinkled on them? Or more? And I am going to to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to cause you to follow my ways. Read it in your Bibles. I'm going to cause you to follow my ways and I will be your God and you will be my people. We've taken that promise for ourselves and well, we should. It's for us. But it's also for the Jews. We didn't, he didn't call us back to Jerusalem from all over the world. We found the message here. And we are in a day though when he is calling the people back. And I feel comfortable in jumping from Nuclear science. Actually, I was a plumber before I was a nuclear scientist. Probably that's not on the record. (laughs) And from to linguistics, to Bible translation, to going over the South Pacific with a message, to writing some books, and I'm trying to get the message out as far and wide. Jesus Christ is coming back to his rightful possession of his family. And I'm excited about being a part of it. And we're all a part of it if we're in Christ. But we need to know what He is doing to be all the more effective. To say amen. And to identify with the coming of the end of days. So that's why I'm here telling you this today and why I've written the books. Okay, so much for the family. Now I want to read one other verse back in Genesis 3. I can preach many, many sermons on this one too. But I want to bring this as the second text. Remember we're going to get three and I'm going to braid them together and make a strong message from this. Now the serpent... Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't forget that for a few moments. We're going to get back to it. The snake's reasoning. The serpent's reasoning. You will be like God. God knows that you will be like Him, knowing good 
and evil. This is so crucial for what we're going to share today and what we see around us today. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God wants us to be like him. Put us on his terms. He wants to put his spirit into us and cause us to follow his ways. Not what the serpent said to our mother Eve. Just keep that in mind because we're going to go back to the family. I'm going to get moving along here even though we might have some time this afternoon. I don't want to take too long. Getting back to the family. Just keep that one in Genesis, in Genesis 3. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Get back to the family. Family had a couple of problem kids. How many of you know of a family that has some problem kids? How many have problem kids in your family? This family, family of redemption, had problem kids. God gave Abraham a promise. He said, you're going to have offspring as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And Abraham sits there watching Sarah get older and older for 20 years and nothing happens. Did you make a mistake? Did I hear wrong? And uh, Abraham had a problem. My lovely wife gives me good advice always. Never like Sarah. (laughs) She said, Abraham, I got an idea. I'm not doing so well. Maybe if you went into my handmaid, you could get that son. Here's Hagar, the Egyptian woman. Abraham fell for it. You you all know the story. It wasn't the son of promise. It wasn't the son of promise. He mocked little, I think when he was about 14 years old, he mocked little Isaac, the son of promise, after he was born. That's in the scriptures. He mocked him. And uh, he's been against the family of redemption ever since. Ishmael was the first of a problem in the family of redemption. And the second one was not too long after that. Uh, Isaac, the the son of promise, actually he was about 60 years old at the time. He grew up and he had a family and he had twin boys. Esau comes out first. Ishmael, sorry, Esau comes out first and young Jacob comes out right after him hanging on to his foot. Pulling his leg, perhaps. You know the story. Ladies, watch your purses when Jacob is around. Because he's a bit of a trickster. He's a little bit shady. Watch it. Brothers, don't keep your wallet in your back pocket. Maybe in the side when Jacob is around. Because Jacob had a few problems. Like most of us have had. But Esau, the firstborn, also had problems. In fact, his problems, he was a hothead. He was angry. He was violent. He was ready to kill his brother. He was jealous. We know the story. But but, uh, Jacob had a wrestling match with the Almighty one night in the form of an angel, specifically anointed by God. 
Was it a, a pre-incarnate presentation of what Jesus would be like, like the fourth member of the fiery furnace or whatever, and Melchizedek and some of these fellows that seemed a little bit different than the angels, a, a very definite presentation of God. Jacob had a wrestling match, and I wouldn't say that he won. Well, he did, but he didn't. He hung all night, he hung on all night and he would not let go of God. And God says, you have wrestled with God and prevailed and I'm going to call you Jacob, uh, Israel from now on, prevailing with God and holding on. So his name was changed. So we don't have to watch those purses and uh, the, the pocketbooks and the wallets anymore. Jacob was changed. Jacob repented. Jacob became a new man. And he walked with a limp. He never walked the same after that because he was under God's authority. Jacob was a new man. Reclaimed for the family of promise. Esau never repented. Hebrews tells us he cried crocodile tears. We've got crocodiles in Australia. And I've never checked the tears. I don't like to get that close. But he wept and he, he, won. he didn't cry because he, what he, that he had done something wrong. He cried because of what he didn't get. Esau never repented. And uh, so the, 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 the family had a couple of problem kids. Okay. I want to read one more text. The third section. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. God speaking to Moses toward the end of his life after he brought the children of Israel out of the, out of the, out of, children of Israel out of Egypt. God tells Moses, when you have entered the land, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Take some of the first, oh, I'm reading the wrong place, I'm sorry. 25, 17. We can erase that from the tape if you're listening. (laughs) Remember, 17, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. That is a very stark claim, a very stark commandment to Moses. Blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven, and he underlines it. Don't forget. Who in the world is Amalek? He didn't say this about the Midianites. He didn't say this about the Amorites and the Moabites. He said it about Amalek. Why? Well, we have to go back to find out who they were. They were waiting for Israel when they came out of Egypt, one of the first ones, to wipe them out. I mean, this is a strong statement. Blot out of the memory of Amalek forever. The Jews today use this name, Amalek, as we use Satan. Satan's making trouble among us. Satan gave me all kinds of trouble this morning. Satan did this and did this. This this is a a symbolism, a euphemism of whoever's doing it. Satan 
is given trouble. He's making trouble. The Jews use Amalek in the same context. He's our destroyer. They could have applied it to Adolf Hitler who wiped out six million Jews back in World War II. They use it today against the Palestinians who are basically Edomites. Amalek. Who was he? Go to the 36th chapter of Genesis. Write it down. I'll look it up later. This gives the, the, um, the descendants of Esau. Esau had a son named Eliphaz. Don't get this confused. There's another Eliphaz in the Bible, but he had, happened to have a son named Eliphaz. And Eliphaz had a son by, she was probably a prostitute. The Bible called her a concubine. And that son's name was Amalek. Amalek is a grandson of Esau. And the flow on from the line of Esau were called the Edomites, or in New Testament times, the Edomaeans. And... They always were and they always will be until unless they are transformed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want to leave the fact that these people cannot be saved or converted. They can be. And a few of them have been of late, but the masses hate the Jews, possibly not even so much of what the Jews do, but they are against the God of the Jews who has a plan to bring back his son in the end of days. Who was the most notorious offspring of Esau in the New Testament? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with H and it's spelled Herod. (laughs) He was an Edomite. He was an Edomaean. And I can't prove it. I I maybe can get into some research if I have time one of these days between meetings and travel, but I would like to get into this. Whether It would be very interesting if he is exactly from the line of Amalek, but if he isn't, he's a close cousin. Herod killed 2,000 baby Jewish boys without blinking to eliminate any competition to him. Oh, of course, he married a Jewish wife, kind of a little bit of a facade. He refurnished, refurbished the temple to make the Jews happy, especially those who were overly impressed with the temple rather than the God of the temple. And uh, he did some uh, weird and wonderful things like that, but there were actually four Herods. I believe in that lineology, and obviously they would be all Edomians or Edomites. So what is happening? We have the problem, kids flowing on into New Testament times. We go to 700 A.D., and here we find that Uncle Ishmael teams up with nephew Esau and their offspring. And up comes a fellow named Mohammed, who starts an entirely new system an idolatrous system, an evil system, and they thought, okay, they thought the Jews would really like this new thing because these Jews are religious people and this is obviously a superior system to theirs. 
they didn't like it, and the Jews became the bitter enemy of Islam. And they thought the Christians, those were, in those days, they were pretty much orthodox people. Uh, but they went by the name of Christians, and they thought they would bow the knee to Allah, and they didn't. And in the Quran, as I said, you should look it up. We have edicts like, bind them in chains, cut off their hands, kill them. Uh, there's a Jew behind this tree. Go get him and kill him. These are things from their holy books. So we have this flowing on from Ishmael to Esau to Herod, to the New Testament, animosity by this particular tribe of people, this particular background of people, flowing through the New Testament, flowing into um, the, the uh, Mecca and Medina, not to be confused with Medina, Ohio, <laughs> Medina in, in, um, in Saudi Arabia, flowing on to... 9-11. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon was right. Not long ago, November, I stood in northern Slovakia on the ground where my grandmother was born and where she played. I don't think she played in those days. Had a hard life. She worked helping with the little brothers and sisters. I stood on the ground. I stood on from there, 137 years of history. From 1867, where my grandmother was born, to my time, and you know, looking at something like that, and I just, you know, when you get as old as I am, you wonder where you came from. And standing there 137 years isn't very long. And what we just did from the time of Ishmael to 9-11, in God's sight, it's not very long. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get a bigger comprehension of the omnipotence, the, the, the utterly incomprehensible sovereignty of our God and what he knew would happen from the beginning of time to this day now. That long a time isn't very long at all. There is nothing new under the sun. But let's quickly go to the other side of it. As bad as terrorism is, we're planning a trip to Israel. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to do it. My wife says we're going to do it. That means we're going to do it. <laughs> End of September... And uh, people say, but aren't you afraid to go to Israel? I'm less afraid in Israel than I am in Los Angeles airport, I'll tell you that. And uh, I was passing through New York, driving through New, uh, around New York City the other day. And uh, kind of watching over my shoulder for mushroom clouds and things like that. I mean, they're, they're after us here. May not happen, 
But uh, I'm more worried about some of these places than I am in Israel. I'm more worried about getting robbed in Papua New Guinea. Of course, they're not interested in my blood there. They're only interested in my wallet. But, I mean, we've got a few pe- we got thousands of Christians in our tribal area. We've got a few people on the road that aren't quite so spiritual. And uh, I'm more concerned about getting held up in Papua New Guinea than I'm running into any problems. But anyway, so much for that. Uh, what I'm saying is, There's more problems than Islamic terror. 300 years, and I want to really focus on this. It's kind of tough right after a meal if you ate too much. So I I didn't eat too much, and I'm standing up here, so I probably won't go to sleep. But I really want you to focus on this part of it. You know all about Islamic terror and stuff like this. But there's things that are out, out there that are worse than Islamic terror because we don't know about them. 300 years before the time of Jesus, there was a new kid on the block. His name was Alexander the Great. Nebuchadnezzar and his offspring were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, and we had the Persian Empire. Then along comes Alexander the Great, and he conquers the world. And he had a lot of power. Something fall down there? (laughs) He had a lot of power. But uh, his sword didn't drip with blood as did the Romans after him. His most devastating flow on, his most devastating contribution to the demise of society. Well, they weren't his, they were from his country, the the mind-bending philosophers of his day, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Pericles, the father of democracy. Now, democracy is a nice thing. It's not going to replace the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and I'm afraid too many people in this country think it ought to. It's not going to. But it's a good thing. I'd rather live in democracy than under Saddam Hussein. But the thing is, Democracy today is being milked by its weaknesses for those who would destroy it. Money and power. You notice how all the poor little kids get to be president of the United States? Hasn't happened yet. Money and power. And those who will come in long enough to learn in our universities how to fly airplanes and things like that, who will milk the system for what it's worth until they can overthrow it. And it is so built that all these people have more rights than the decent people. That's the way the laws go. Anyway, the philosophers came up as a direct player in world affairs. Now, what did the, let's have a quick look at, at the difference between between Abraham and the God of the Greek philosophers. The Hebraic vision, the Hebraic view of things, was not what God looked like, but what He did. He was not a God to be discussed and dissected and analyzed and, and figured out like the, the philosophers tried to figure out a, maybe not God, but a God concept. 
to the Hebrews, if he said it, we will do it. He was a God to be obeyed. A God to be obeyed. It was not what he looked like. It's what he did. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that fed you manna in the wilderness. I'm the God. I am the, the God that healeth thee. It was a God to be obeyed, not to be questioned. You could talk to him like Abraham discussed with him. Would you do this? Would you do that? He's a God that loves us, but he's a God that his sovereignty is over all. The Greek concept of God was to analyze him, discuss him. What would make a good God? Is there a God? What would a model be? To the Hebrew mind, to the Greek mind, God, uh, to the, 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 the philosophers, they planted seeds of doubt. Everything was up for question. Jesus planted mustard seeds of faith. There's the difference. And, now listen to this one, please. The philosopher's concept of God was that eventually mankind would become his own God. Man would become his own God. Hello? We are there. We are there. I'll touch on this in a minute, but the Geneva Convention has replaced the Bible, what God speaks to us, with band-aids on society. And they sound very, very good. But it's human inventions to patch up our globe without repentance and transformation and a heart transplant from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Let's look at just quickly the, the influence of the Greek philosophers on the on the early Jews in the time of Jesus. They weren't the early; they were Jews in the time of Jesus. This is three hundred years afterwards. The Maccabees fought the Greek influence because it wasn't just with weapons; it was to change the society to think like they did. Remember the Sadducees? You remember how they differed from the Pharisees? They had the council and Paul was there in the council and they said, they said, uh, 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 Paul saw that, sorry, Paul saw that there were, there were Jews. Uh, Paul saw that there were Sadducees. He saw there were Pharisees and he himself was a Pharisee. And he says, you guys are just trying to get me because I'm a Pharisee and believe in the resurrection. He was ple- preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So he kind of split the group. He said, you're trying, he wasn't, he was pretty smart too. You're just trying to split, uh, you're just trying to get me because I'm a Pharisee. And this started a big kerfuffle and they, the, the Sadducees were all upset and the Pharisee, no, the Pharisees were all upset. Because they kind of sided in with Paul. Maybe this guy did have something. Because the next verse says, Because the Sadducees believed in neither demons, nor angels, nor the resurrection. I think I have that in reverse order. 
while the Pharisees believed all three. They were hypocrites, but they still believed in these scriptural tenets of a spirit world controlled by God. And the Pharisees were getting rid. The Pharisees, uh, sorry, the Sadducees were influenced by the Greek thinking already in that day with regard to demonic forces. And that has flowed on today into our secular Western world where we might talk about Satan, but we really have not been up to evaluating some of the things he does until you've gone to the third world where they know the effects of satanic influence on their society. And they are so thankful to have a God that takes care of that. Anyway, this was the influence on the Sadducees. Now let's get closer to home. The early church fathers, which were Romans, influenced, converted Romans. I don't know how converted. But influenced by the Greeks, they cut off their Jewish roots because they began to hate the Jews. And this has been to our demise today. And I do not mean legalisms, but I mean the intimacy that some of these Jewish Orthodox, at least, had with God. These were severed from intimacy to thinking. Um, Dr. Michael Brown, who wrote, our, wrote a book called Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. I don't know if you ever read about it. It's about anti-Semitism in the church at large. He wrote another book which impressed me. He said, what was a, what was a movement in first century Jerusalem, what was a movement in first century Jerusalem became a philosophy in Greece became an organization in Rome, became a culture in Europe, and became an enterprise in America. You got that? What was a movement in first century Jerusalem when Jesus, Yeshua, presented himself as a representative of his father, became a philosophy in Greece, an organization in Rome, a culture in Europe, and that culture in Europe and Australia is dead today. And it became an enterprise in America. We have a people, we have a system that has not greatly been influenced by that enterprise. As we might see out there, I don't want to judge anybody else. But this is what's happened. Diverting away from intimacy with the Almighty. Anyway, what about these church fathers? A couple of things. One thing, celibacy. It doesn't work. The church that practices it is running into all kinds of problems today. God didn't make us that way. But this came from the Greek thinking that there's a spiritual realm up here and there's the mundane things down here and the two shall never meet. Into the Hebrew mind, everything is spiritual. And you can ask a blessing on anything that God gives us and makes us and nothing is dirty and nothing is unclean. Our people in Papua New Guinea follow the Hebraic type of thinking where bodily functions 
they wouldn't understand the sick jokes that are told among certain crowd in America about uh, about bodily functions and things like that. It's not funny. No more than eating is funny. And it is a sick mind that has been influenced by the Greeks who tried to separate the spiritual from the mundane. The Hebrews even have a blessing. Even have a blessing for the elimination of body waste because it's a blessing. God made us. And these things are good. God looked and He saw that it was good. The Greeks instituted... The Greek thinking instituted celibacy among the Roman church, which is a disaster. It's not the way God made us. Another thing they did, we the, the Nicene Creed says, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It makes it sound like three gods. I talked to an Orthodox Jew. I said, you think we have three gods, don't you? He says, yeah, just like that. And I said, wait a minute. I said, God is so big, He can't even be described. He can't even be described. He can't, we, we can't reach Him. But His Spirit, the Holy Breath in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Breath, is God's connection between an untouchable God and us. He said, that'd be right. I said, is that two gods? He said, no. I said, okay, let's look at Jesus. I said, he was a human man, a human so filled with the Spirit of God that he became God's special presentation to us. I'm treading on thin ice here with a Jew. And he said, I can buy that. And this, the thing is the alienation between Jewish thinking and much of the church is because of these Jewish roots being cut off. I like the concept. God is indescribable. He's untouchable. He's unreachable. His breath is the Holy Spirit. And I found it in the Scriptures a few months ago. He says, Is my right arm too short to reach you? Is my right arm too short to save you? And he is, and um, the right arm is a perfect reflection of what Jesus does. He's the arm of God to surround us. I shared this in Papua New Guinea one time. They loved it because they love to shake hands. Love to shake hands to cement relationships, to pass on greetings, or to fix up old relationships. It's all over. We shake hands. I said, Jesus is God's way of shaking hands with you. They loved it. Now this, this is biblical. And the Greek thinking is where you say it in three names, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it almost creates, which the Greeks had no problem with having three gods, it creates the, the reflection that there are three gods. It is one God with three representations, three facets, as it were. Anyway, these are things that float on into the church. There's many, many more. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The big one. St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the Roman Catholic theologian, was a student of Aristotle. Plato said there are three ways of getting information. One is, one is through reading and study. Two, through intuition. That's where the ladies come in, and that's why we guys have to get married, to get a little bit of insight by... I just had a feeling, you know. 
The third one Plato taught was divine madness, he called it, which is the metaphysical realm, the spirit realm. The spirit realm. Aristotle came along and he chucked that one out, he threw it out. No divine madness. He wiped out this spirit realm of a spirit world. That's why the Sadducees got hung up on this. And this is why in our institutions today and in our Western civilized world, it is very hard to think about demons and angels. And some people, especially in the third world, know about demons. And some of us who have been there and worked with these people don't bat an eye when somebody says, I saw an angel. And don't bat an eye when somebody has had a problem with a demon. This is the influence of the early Greek philosophers. This is the influence. And let's get the Geneva Convention. The rights of the child. Doesn't that sound good? The rights of the child all over the world. He's got a right to this, a right to that, a right to other things. Usually I have a few kids around to say, some little fellow sitting in the front row or something, and I say, do you have any rights? But uh, we're all older ones here. That is putting band-aids on the responsibilities of the parents. God speaks of our responsibilities, not of our human rights. And all you hear over the media is human rights, Political, political correctness, human rights, human rights, human rights, the rights of the, of the women. And if we treat our wives like queens, they don't have to have posters for liberation. The rights of, of the child, the rights of the women. There's another thing. God drove nations out when they were in the ways of his plan, but not according to the Geneva Convention. No longer is it Possible to drive people out who are in an evil situation. Same thing with war. No more war according to the Geneva Convention, as we as a people certainly don't like war. Nobody likes war. But today we have university students who instead of learning something like we did in our day, they get a placard and say, down with this and down with that and no more war and out of uh, whatever. Because this is the pressure of our times. You know, I said we're going to get back to the third chapter of Genesis. Eve, take this apple. It wasn't an apple. Touch the tree. Touch the fruit. You will be wise like God. We are there where we are getting rid of the Bible. Rip the Ten Commandments out of schoolyards and out of, out of the lawns of a schoolhouse. Take the, 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 they had it in the Grand Canyon, a plaque with a sob on it, take it off. We were just in, um, we were just in, um, Hillsboro, Illinois, place down there. They had a big sign on the courthouse that said, the world needs God. They had to take it off. One of the churches grabbed it up and put it on their church. The world needs God. We are at a place where we were, the Geneva Convention and the flow on from World War II has presented, we know good and evil and we're going to fix it. And our world is coming apart. Democracy is being disintegrated. 
The world is coming apart. I forgot to tell you something, but I'll tell you now. Forty years ago, I knew everything there was to know about end-time prophecy. Thirty years ago, I started over. This afternoon, I know two things from Revelation that might be a little bit cryptic otherwise. The first one I should have told you a little while ago. I believe with all my heart that the sixth trumpet where 200 million came out of the Euphrates River. You know the demonic capital of the world? Still is. Army of 200 million comes out of the Euphrates River. John says, I saw, I, I heard their number. 200 million. I say the sixth trumpet was blown on 9-11. The very day that book went to press. That's one thing I know. And by the way, our, our leaders stand on their heads and tell us that there's good Islam and bad Islam. There are good people and bad people. There are people that need Jesus Christ, and some of the Muslims are coming to Jesus. There is no good Islam in God's standards. It's demonic. It is demonic. And so, okay, but even if somebody wants to reason along those lines, there are 1.2 billion Muslims alive today. And if you, that's 1,200 million. Divide that by 200 million. You got six. If one out of six Muslims are terrorists, involved with terrorists, hiding terrorists, helping terrorists, one out of six, you got an army of 200 million. And perhaps the others are nice people but deceived. That's the one thing I'm sure of. The sixth trumpet in the Revelation was blown. You can read more about it in this book. Was blown. It's not in this book because I published it one day too soon. Was blown on 9-11. But the other thing, and I'm getting to it right now with this Greek thing. The other thing, I am sure of Revelation 13.5 about this beast thing. I'm not going to get into the beast. Revelation 13.5 says the beast was given a mouth to blaspheme God. Remember that? And to overcome his saints or his people. I know what that mouth is. It is the media. The global media. It has power that has been unprecedented in this globe. We've got the internet. We've got, we've got CNN running 24-7. We've got Reuters. We've got the, British, the BBC. We've got all this corrupt media from advertising political correctness. The perverts have more rights than the moral. Anybody, I can write stuff and I get, can get a letter printed in many, many papers and letters to the editor. But not in Australia. If I mention God or the Bible or the Jews. She's all over. I think you can still get away with some of this in America. But not in Australia and certainly not in Europe. I've had a number of letters printed in the Jerusalem Post. And there you can mention God to a point. But uh, the media controls the thought process of the entire world. The beast had a mouth to blaspheme God and to overcome his people. How many of you in here have been overcome by the media? You don't know. 
maybe just a little because you don't know what you hear that is wrong if you have not looked at the other side of the coin. Where's my brother? There's my brother Barry. He and I will not get taken in on this, but you know this ad where the the, the gal uses the the, the the right shampoo <laughs> and she waves her hair back and forth and it glistens in the lights. Have you seen this ad? It glistens. Now we know it's not going to happen to us, but some of you gals might think that it may happen to you. But you know that's funny. But this is typical of the media. They're telling us stuff that is lies, lies, lies politically about the politics, whether it's about Iraq, especially about Israel. There is overwhelming Palestinian Islamic propaganda against Israel. My last, last bulletin that I put out on the email was about this uh, ICJ, that's the International Court of Justice decision about Israel building a fence to protect themselves. And they've got all kinds of reasons why it's terrible. And it has cut suicide attacks in Israel, suicide bombers. It has cut it 90%. And Islam is screaming about it and influencing all of Europe. The media is... You see things happen, the, the, the CNN reports what happens in uh, Israel. And it's totally distorted. Because I don't think it's under the control of any one conspiracy. I believe it is under the control of the devil himself. Revelation 12.12, 12, because he knows his time is short. I want to finish. You've been very patient. I've talked a long time. But the, the media, and oh yes, one more thing. Demons and angels. Demons and angels. As I said, we as a people have not had a lot of theological background. We've had teaching of repentance, but there are certain issues that come up today. We haven't had a lot of theological background. We borrow from other people. One thing, there, there is a, I don't know if I should call a name or not. I will. John MacArthur. He's on the radio. He gives all kinds of things about this, that, and the other thing. And he is totally death on the gifts of the Spirit. Now, all our church always has believed and practiced healing according to James 5. And miracles. I, th- I know that my grandmother and background people, they believed in miracles. We believe in miracles. And uh, the teaching about these things... And there are certain gifts, perhaps, that some people abuse. Well, that's right, too. But the fact is that the, the, the power of God's Spirit is no longer for today because once the Bible was written down, we don't need the gifts of the Spirit anymore. That's heresy. We need the power of God's Spirit in our lives. We only have to go to the mission field. The report you heard this morning. Only have to go to the mission field to see how much we need God's intervention. But there is a theory out today by a large number of evangelicals. This thing's all over with. All you have to do is read the Bible learn the verses. We need the power of God within us. I don't know. The, uh, <laughs> like this morning. Well, um, 
What's that? The theme. Be strong in the Lord. Yeah, I got a mental block. Been talking too long. I'm sorry. Be strong in the Lord. And this is only done by the power of the Spirit of God within us. So where did this this nice man, Bible believer, I believe he's a Christian, where did he get this stuff? It's Greek influence. It's Sadducee influence. No more demons. No more angels. It's lucky he's even left the resurrection in there. We get, and this is again, more media. We are influenced incredibly by the media and the print media. Enough of that. Open your eyes. Check it out. This is the book. This is the book. Oh, the summation is Zechariah 9, 13. Listen to this. If you don't remember anything else, don't forget this. Don't forget Amalek either. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. How many of you know we're sons of Zion? We've been influenced. Our culture is influenced. Our whole world is influenced by this Greek thinking to destroy the metaphysical, to replace truth with band-aids, the responsibilities of parents with the rights of the child, the, re- the, re- the responsibilities of uh, well, human rights. The Bible is full of human responsibilities. Nothing about human rights. One verse. Uh, Lamentations 3, about the middle of the chapter. Will, man, will God deny a man his rights before the Most High? In other words, we have rights to stand before God. But the human rights as spoken of by the media just gets people greedy, covetous, dissatisfied when we are here to serve the living God. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you, Zion, like a warrior sword. We need to be intimate with God Almighty. So what are we going to do? I, I, I close with this. For sure, sure. We need an ark. Joe, are you a boat builder? <laughs> Anybody build a boat? <laughs> Big boat. We can all get in and a few dogs and cats too. No, that's finished. There is another ark that we need. And that is that golden box that they carried into the wilderness. It's not so much we need the box, we need what was in it. And I say stay close to the ark. In our spiritual lives, stay close to the box. What was in it? Two tablets of stone. And am I, am I saying, if you keep the Ten Commandments, you're right? No. That's getting the cart before the horse. Those tablets of stone, what did Moses showed them to the congregation in the wilderness? What did they mean? God has picked you people to be a people with a difference. God has picked you people as His family. You are His chosen people. That's first. Then flip the stones over, and this is the code of what the family does. 
And from Constantine on, who paganized Christianity, it's if you do these things, God will like you. No, that's paganism. And we saw this in work in, Pap- at work in Papua New Guinea. Until they got it right and realized that God loves them, and because He loves me, I'll do what He says. Not, if I do what He says, He'll love me. That's paganism. That's the pagan approach. But the tablets of stone in the box says, I have picked you, and if you think you are here because it was your idea, I think the Almighty had a great deal to do with your coming to camp this year. I have chosen you. Turn the stones over. Now this is what my family does as I have chosen you to be a part of the family. And there is a watershed of difference. Secondly, what was in that, bo- that golden box? I believe that we're going to run into more and more persecution as believers. And I'm afraid that people who are scared into the kingdom of God will be scared out of it when tough times come. Let's present God's faithfulness and love to us and i don't think the fear of fear is carries that much lasting power it does some if we get a little bit scared and get things fixed up that's good but the the greater thing is to be identifying with our father to do what he's doing and it might get tough we're used to the lunches that we had and the dinners we're going to have tonight. And it might get tough, but he says, in the box. You know what else is there? Jar of manna. Don't ever forget. I was able to feed you in the wilderness. I can feed you wherever you're at. And the third thing flies in the face of those who say, the age of miracles is all over. There was a dry stick in that box, Aaron's rod. And Moses laid it out before the tent of meeting. In the morning there were buds and fruit on it. God says, i got a miracle for you. Be strong in the Lord. And I believe that the, the, the shadows are lengthening before the return of our Lord Jesus. Remember the stones and he says, you are my special people. Remember the fact that he can take care of you. When you tell the truth and when you defy the world system with your convictions. And remember that he has a miracle for you when you need it most. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you. Should I just pray or maybe I should? Or do you want? You're an engineer. Father, thank you for the time together, and Lord, that we could hold these things in our hearts, that we realize the day is coming, that you're going to return. May we be found doing what the Master wishes until you come, reaching out to others and snatching them out of the fire. In the name of Jesus, amen.